Welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm John Brannigan, the series editor. The following lecture in the series, Reconceiving the British Isles, is given by Professor Edna Longley, Professor Emerita of Queen's University, Belfast, and is entitled Poems and Paradigms. Historians have been reconceiving the British Isles for longer than literary critics. The names they give their reconceptions include Three Kingdoms History, Four Nations History and Atlantic History. But increasingly, to adapt T.S. Eliot, in the room the critics come and go, talking of the archipelago. Talk of the archipelago received a boost from John Kerrigan's superb book, Archipelagic English, published two years ago. In fact, literary academics have often been archipelagic critics avant la lettre. That is, they have approached texts from these islands and from the medieval to the modern period with due attention to what Kerrigan calls the expansive, multi-leveled, polycentric, aspects of the literary and cultural field. I began talking of the archipelago myself when I found that my own field, modern poetry in English, made it impossible not to do so. Yet modern poetry can be peculiarly hard to prise away from the systems, both intellectual and institutional, established by nation-based literary studies. That also applies to how international or modernist as critical terms can simply mean American and to how English poetry can take over. In fact, English poetry is rarely segregated on a national basis. There are no anthologies, for instance. But the seeming abdication is explained and outweighed by two factors. First, confusion between country and language. Second, as in other spheres, confusion of Britain with England. This paper will argue that archipelagic polycentrism is crucial to readings of modern Anglophone poetry. The fact that Anglo-American criticism suppresses nationality is no reason for Irish or Scottish criticism to overemphasise it. In fact, both the suppression and the overemphasis can mean that the archipelago punches below its collective aesthetic weight. The strikingly archipelagic Rhymers Club, which W.B. Yeats co-founded in 1890s London, was the original avant-garde coterie. Further, to think in terms of the Atlantic archipelago is to open up the full range of poetic traffic between our islands and America. My talk has two main headings, the mobility of poetry, the immobility of critical paradigms. First, it's obvious that poetry, like people, or with people, 
and with languages, moves around these islands. Like it or not, English colonisation or expansionism, Irish and Scottish migrations have had a cumulative effect. You could devise an intricate map to track poetic crisscrossings since 1890. A map of genres, forms, images, language, lexis, contexts, intertexts, influence, ancestry, domicile, movements, groups, networks, publishing. The map would pinpoint connections and disconnections, not always where we might expect to find them. And it would register sea changes. To quote Kerrigan again, the archipelago fosters fusions and transformations. On this map, one poet who would be all over the place is Yeats. I'll be stressing Yeats's archipelagic bearings and their continuing significance. There's a naive literalness to the idea that poetry becomes more international, less insular, so to speak, if its author moves to Budapest or Boston. Meanwhile, actual or imagined or literary travel within these islands tends to be taken for granted. It lacks the categorical cachet of abroad or exile, perhaps indeed because it falls between home and abroad. These are actually suggestive poles, and the poetic charge between them ranges from defamiliarisation to tension to conflict. Sea changes can be subversions. To return to the mystique of abroad, Alan Bennett once joked in the persona of a self-important expatriate writer, why did Joyce go to Paris? Or Brenda to Scunthorpe? In fact, Irish and Scottish writers often went to London for reasons that national literary histories play down. One such, Louis McNeese, ironically wondered whether his CV would look better if he had had a Berlin to say goodbye to. Hence the mock heroic title of his own 1930s travel book, I Crossed the Minch, the Minch being the channel between mainland Scotland and Skye, Lewis, Harris and North Uist. McNeese's mock heroics also insist that he has indeed made a journey the Isles are not the mainland, neither are they homogeneous. Even Hugh MacDermott's nationalism faltered on the multiplicity of the Scottish islands. Similarly, McNeese represents the islands as partly foreign, partly implicated in his own archipelagic baggage, Irish baggage, his English left-wing intellectual milieu, the Scottish dimensions of Ulster. Perhaps island poems, like Gneese's The Hebrides, epitomise the need to talk of the archipelago. I'm now going to look at a few poems written between 1916 and 1977 which show their archipelagic coordinates on the surface, and I'll link those coordinates with underlying aesthetic dynamics. The locus of poetry itself is also at issue. 
I should stress that I'm only pulling out one or two strands from among the comparative possibilities which these and other poems present. The poems are all by poets who have variously suffered from critical failure to think in archipelagic terms. Yeats seen as not Irish enough, W.S. Graham as not Scottish enough, McNeese seen as divided, neither Irish nor English, Philip Larkin seen as too English, Edward Thomas seen as English in ways that overlook his Welsh background and Irish influences. To quote another Thomas, Dylan, addressing a Scottish nationalist audience in Edinburgh, Dylan Thomas called himself a border case. He said, regarded in England as a Welshman and a waterer of England's milk, and in Wales as an Englishman, I am too unnational to be here at all. I should be living in a small private leper house in Hereford or Shropshire, one foot in Wales and my vowels in England. Archipelagic criticism is not about admitting border cases into national canons. It is about reconceiving the entire poetic landscape in terms that border cases show to be necessary. If a poem doesn't fit the paradigm, change the paradigm. Yeats's Under Saturn and Larkin's The Importance of Elsewhere include the word home. Home is itself a mobile motif and usually a subnational one. The stress on local dwelling that characterises the poetry of our islands has proved paradoxically transferable, ever open to fusions and transformations. For instance, Patrick Kavanagh's well-known concept of the parochial poem was influenced by English country poetry, Clare, Edward Thomas, which he contrasted with this national thing that is no use to anyone. As a metaphysics of place, which now encompasses ecology, home has romantic roots in Wordsworth's construction of the Lake District, duly transplanted by Yeats to Sligo. Under Saturn was written when Yeats came over from Oxford to introduce his English wife to Sligo. Larkin's poem moves in the opposite direction. He wrote it soon after he returned to England after five years in Belfast. To quote from the poems, I am thinking of a child's vow sworn in vain, never to leave that valley his fathers called their home. Lonely in Ireland since it was not home, strangeness made sense. Both poets situate home with reference to other points of the archipelagic compass, and as they do so, they imply the psychic variables that writing poetry involves. Under Saturn begins, Do not, because this day I have grown Saturnine, imagine that lost love, inseparable from my thought, because I have no other youth, can make me pine. Larkin presents a psychological spectrum 
that ranges from lonely to unworkable. To quote his second stanza, there drafty streets end on to hills, the faint archaic smell of dockland like a stable, the herring hawker's cry dwindling went to prove me separate, not unworkable. All this gloom, then, is partly reflexive. The importance of elsewhere measures the mix of closeness and distance on which its own inspiration depends. Yeats explains his fantastic ride on Pegasus as driven by a quest to recover lost love, not Maud gone, but the valley of his early poetic sources. Although my wits have gone on a fantastic ride, my horse's flanks are spurred by childish memories of an old cross Pollocksven. Under Saturn is archipelagic on a familial level. The Pollocksvens originally came from Devon. This may accommodate Yeats's English wife. The poem is also archipelagic on an aesthetic level. Not only does the speaker implicitly carry with him poems shaped by absence, what constitutes his poetic home is not Ireland as such, but an intimately known locality, now a Wordsworthian nexus of childhood and memory. Similarly, the importance of elsewhere indicates that Larkin pre-experienced Ireland in aesthetic terms, that is, he had spent three years immersed in Yeats. But just as critics often take Yeats at his word when he repudiates Wordsworth, so they sometimes believe Larkin when he claims that Hardy purged Yeats from his aesthetic. The importance of Larkin's double-edged elsewhere includes the poetry of elsewhere. Contact with Yeats endures in his stanza structure, in the play of monosyllabic against polysyllabic words, in his smuggling of archaic folk traces into a cameo of 1950s Belfast. Of course, transformation is at work too. For Yeats, childhood and memory are more cultural poetic agents than they are for Wordsworth. Vision comes from supernatural sources. Similarly, in the lines, these are my customs and establishments, it would be much more serious to refuse, Larkin relocates and darkens Yeats's custom and ceremony. To quote Larkin on Belfast again, the salt rebuff of speech insisting so on difference. Philip Larkin is not usually hailed as a theorist of difference, yet the importance of elsewhere suggests the archipelago's ability to feed antinomies of home and strangeness, including speech, that may be intrinsic to lyric structure. From one angle, under Saturn, rewrites the Lake Isle of Inishfree. Inishfree should not be underrated, as a template for poems of intra-archipelagic travel, poems governed by desire or nostalgia, the direction most commonly 
from city to country or east to west. W.S. Graham's Lock Tom also rewrites Inish Free and, like under Saturn, involves a temporal as well as spatial journey. To quote the opening lines, Just for the sake of recovering, I walk backward from 56 quick years of age, wanting to see, and managed not to trip or stumble, to find Lock Tom, and turned round to see the stretch of my childhood before me. The poem's own implied locus is Graham's domicile on the Cornish coast. This may colour the stress on the loch as fresh water, with the sea, the Firth of Clyde, miles away. The speaker makes a dreamlike return north to where Loch Tom once represented escape from industrial Greenock. Like Yeats's valley, the loch also seems an inspirational neo-Wordsworthian source to which return is problematic. My mother is dead, my father is dead, and all the trout I used to know leaping from their sad rings are dead. The capitalised, unpunctuated last words imply multifaceted dislocation. Go back, go back, go back. Farewell, Lock Tom. Two other archipelagic factors. First, Graham's mother was Irish, hence perhaps my mammy's bramble jam scones and other Irish allusions in his poetry. Second, he was influenced by Dylan Thomas in the 1950s as pan-archipelagic a force as Yeats, hence 56 quick years of age. Lock Tom might also be read as a dark counterpart to Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill. Edward Thomas's The Ashgrove is another poem about return and about poetry, but its core locus is neither named nor fixed. The speaker remembers the spatial and temporal interval he once came upon in a decayed ash grove. He connects it with other such groves by invoking a song of that title, itself elusive. To quote the last seven lines, And now an ash grove far from those hills can bring the same tranquillity in which I wander a ghost with a ghostly gladness as if I heard a girl sing the song of the ash grove soft as love uncrossed and then in a crowd or in distance it were lost but the moment unveiled something unwilling to die and I had what most I desired without search or desert or cost. The ghostliness here seems associated first with what Thomas called his mainly Welsh ancestry, second with his terming himself one of those modern people who belong nowhere. Ash is native to the hills of South Wales. The Ashgrove is a Welsh harp melody set to various Welsh and English words, some of which the poem echoes. Its Welsh dimension concerns an occluded past, a half-dead grove, a hypothetically fallen house, an almost lost song. Yet all this somehow survived to enable the epiphany, the poem. 
Thomas's poetry can be read in archipelagic terms, not only because it elides boundaries between England and Wales, but also because his imagining of England draws on his reading of Welsh and Irish poetry, especially Yeats. The pervasive presence of folk song is one example. Another presence here is Wordsworth again, in the ratio between memory, tranquillity and poetry. But the poem's English, Welsh and possibly Irish coordinates, perhaps a touch of Celticism, are blended in a way that makes its tranquil space fragile. Carrick Revisited, written at the end of the Second World War, is Louis McNeese's most explicitly archipelagic poem. It situates his Carrick Fergus childhood, both geographically and historically, between Western Ireland, home of his father's, and Southern England, where he now lives. Public and family history interpenetrated. Carrick's Norman Castle, as plumb assured as 30 years ago, two world wars, the fact that the McNeese family's departure from Western Ireland was precipitated by sectarian tensions. Here again, childhood landscape is recalled in a way that suggests formative effects which inform the poem itself. I quote, The channels of my dreams determined largely by random chemistry of soil and air, memories I had shelved peer at me from the shelf. In stressing randomness rather than rootedness, or stressing the dialectic between the two, abroad, home, McNeese lays out archipelagic terrain that has fostered a mobility central to his own aesthetic. Time and place are bridgeheads into reality, but also its concealment. Out of the sea, we land on the particular and lose all other possible bird's eye views. Obviously, the sea enters archipelagic scenarios. Some of these poems evoke the heyday of boats and trains, an era wonderfully captured by a floating commonwealth, Christopher Harvey's book on the commerce, culture and politics of Atlantic and Irish Sea coasts. Greenock and Belfast were hubs of this traffic. The Pollock's Fens had shipping interests. Yeats refers to the Sligo Quay, Larkin to Dockland. As a poetic locus between Western Ireland and Southern England, Carrick marks the spot where McNeese transformed Yeatsian aesthetics. During the 1930s, McNeese violated Yeats's boundaries, as no other Irish poet did, by not screening out the fact, language and imagery of technological modernity. The first stanza of Carrick Revisited calls on or calls up the urban impressionism that marks McNeese's contribution to the socially conscious aesthetic of the English 1930s. Here are new villas. Here is a sizzling grid. Yet the felt incongruity of villas and grid with the locks, green banks, strikes a residually Yeatsian note. Villa is a kitsch word that derives from the suburbanisation of London. 
Grid is a 1930s pylon poet word. Both seem thrown into environmental and aesthetic question. McNeese introduced Irish dimensions to English contexts and vice versa. For instance, his city poems of Birmingham and London, as well as Belfast and Dublin, are complex spaces on which much urban Irish, English and Scottish poetry was subsequently built. Similarly, McNeese violated the neutrality of Irish poetry with consequences for how later Irish poets mediate or invoke the Second World War, as in so-called Troubles poetry. In Carrick Revisited, the speaker was and is dumbfounded to find myself in a topographical frame. McNeese and other poets have often been dumbfounded in the sense of silenced or only partially heard by the topographical frames that nation-based paradigms impose. I'm currently involved in a project entitled Modern Irish and Scottish Poetry, Relations and Comparisons. Poetry is both central and peripheral to Irish and Scottish literary studies. Central because both fields derive from the cultural nationalism of Yeats and Macdermott, peripheral because, as these poets found in different ways, poetry does not always march with the nation. Further, excessive weight on Scottish or Irish before poetry can preempt literary critical readings. Yet, of course, such weighting reflects the struggle to assert a distinctive Irish literature or to pose English ascendancy in British literature, the title of an early polemic by Macdermott, a struggle that has had to be renewed. During the mid-20th century, little was done in indigenous Irish and Scottish criticism, either to theorise national canons or to contest Anglo-American ascendancy in modern literature. So when Irish and Scottish literary studies began to take off during the 1970s, as if making up for lost time, their broad tendency was nationalist. Critics were less keen to talk of the archipelago than kick away the Irish or Scottish props sustaining English literature's illusion of its organic unity. This tendency was accentuated by the Northern Ireland Troubles from 1969 and by the lost referendum on Scottish devolution, 1979. By the same token, the archipelagic paradigm might be construed as neo- or crypto-unionist or is driven by the alliance between the Irish and UK governments that enabled the peace process. I would add that dialectics between unionist and nationalist criticism are an undernoted force in the history of the Archipelagic Literary Academy. In any case, Ray Ryan and Liam McIlvanny warn in their co-edited Ireland and Scotland, Culture and Society, 1700 to 2000, to advocate an Irish-Scottish context is to establish a political, and in some eyes a polemical, framework for debate. 
Within Irish studies, the Irish-Scottish comparison is viewed by some as unionism's answer to post-colonial studies. That is so because it appears to reconnect the Republic with the UK, to pivot on Ulster, not necessarily the case, nor ipso facto a bad thing, and to position Northern Ireland partly out with this island. That is, as a zone where Ireland and Scotland interpenetrate. In contrast, from the angle of Scottish literary studies, an Irish-Scottish framework looks more like nationalism's answer to English ascendancy in British literature. Meanwhile, most studies of modern poetry and most literary histories remain nation-based. For example, the recent multi-volume Cambridge History of Irish Literature and Edinburgh History of Scottish Literature largely inhabit parallel universes, yet they are unconscious twins. The editors of both stress inclusiveness, linguistic multiplicity, plural identities. So far, so good, you might think. But both inclusiveness and identity politics can leave border cases stranded, while neither advance literary critical argument. To conceive modern poetry in archipelagic terms is, I believe, to advance aesthetic and critical thinking. But it's not a question of either or. The archipelagic paradigm complements rather than usurps nation-based studies. It helps to identify the appropriate contexts of explanation and interpretation, local, national, archipelagic, international, in particular cases. The paradigm exposes internal disconnections and transnational connections. It gives the adjective colonial a much-needed rest and it can replace a priori assumptions with readings that elicit what is truly distinctive in national or literary terms. The poems I've discussed happen to highlight the interactive posterity of Wordsworth and Yeats, as in Seamus Heaney's poetry, for instance. The archipelagic paradigm often reinforces the view the transformations of Romanticism remain alive in modern poetry. It also helps us to understand Yeats's own influence from a perspective that doesn't yoke him often incongruously to Eliot and Pound or obsessively to Ireland. McNeese's and Larkin's transformations of Yeats underline the fact that much of his mid-20th century aesthetic posterity occurred in what might be called his other island. To some, this might prove that Yeats was a Brit all along. To others, it might suggest that Irish nationalist ideology prevented certain Irish poets, and such critics as there were, from engaging with his mature poetry, as did McNeese and Auden in the 1930s, or Larkin, Ted Hughes and Geoffrey Hill in the 1950s. Irish poets of the last half century have not just been exposed to an unmediated or national Yeats. There are still too many studies along the lines of Yeats and X and Ireland. 
Irish literary history has yet to reckon with where Northern Irish poetry came from. One answer, an archipelagic answer, as perhaps most of the answers would be, is that it came from Yeats via Britain. It's no accident, for instance, that Seamus Heaney's essay, England's of the Mind, focuses on Larkin, Hughes and Hill. But here, Heaney may partly be responding to hidden Ireland's of the mind, also to many layers of Yeats's archipelagic origins and impact. You have been listening to Professor Edna Longley's lecture, Poems and Paradigms, in this UCD ScholarCast. A transcript of this lecture is available to download at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. <laughs>